Hello and welcome to the Educators Gate Podcast. My name is Seth Tripp and today is Friday, July 27th, 2018. Thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the podcast. Today I'm bringing you part two of my interview with journalism teacher, PA announcer, Andrew Smith. If you did not check out part one of that interview, please go and do so at educatorscape.com or on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, or on Spotify. If you're interested in any of our other content, such as the Instagram page or Facebook or Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at EducatorEscape. You can like the page on Facebook at EducatorEscape. And now posting every day on Instagram, you can find quotes from each episode to try to give you a little bit of an insight into what we're talking about in that episode. And I hope that you will I hope that you will listen and share from those Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter posts. Last time on the podcast, Andrew Smith and I discussed how he runs the student newspaper how the 21st century is being shaped by this new kind of journalism with Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all these other things. A good quote from that episode was that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you needed a printing press or an FCC license to broadcast or publish anything. But now all you need is the ability to sign up for Twitter. So uh, a really good focus on the changing of the times. We talk about we talk about the adoption process for both of his sons uh, coming from Asia, China, and Korea, to be exact. On this episode, we're talking about how he ended up being the PA announcer for the minor league affiliate of the NHL franchise, the Chicago Blackhawks, the Indy Fuel, and how he manages to balance life with his busy schedule being a PA announcer, journalism advisor, social studies teacher, father and everything else that goes into what Andrew Smith is as a person. Here is part two of my interview with Andrew Smith. Switching gears to your other job, Mm -hmm. the other thing that you do. How did you, how did you come upon announcing for the fuel? What is that? What was that, that process like? How did, how did you even find it? It's a long and winding road. Actually, I've been really passionate about hockey since I was a kid. And when I was seven years old, my dad took me to a game, I think, just to have a night out with the kid. You know, it's winter. There's nothing else going on. It's cheap. Let's go out to a hockey game. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. You know, the ice was gleaming white and this game was fast and it was fun and it it was just riveting to me. And I couldn't get enough of it. And you know, growing up in Indiana, you're surrounded by baseball. You know, baseball's mm-hmm. on TV every day. You're surrounded by basketball, obviously. You know, every single college game and the Pacers between IU, Purdue, and the Pacers, you get to watch a hundred games a year on TV. Back in the days of four channels, this was a mystery. I had never seen anything like this. You know, hockey really wasn't on television, so I really became drawn to the sport and really wanted to know everything about it. I couldn't get enough of it. So I just continued to follow the sport and it it kind of became something that I really developed a love for as a kid. And so when I was in college, I was a columnist for the student paper at Indiana. And 
whenever I could, usually about once a semester, I would, uh, you know, I'd contact some people at the Indianapolis Ice and do a column. And so I got to know some of the people there, their PR people and Ray Compton, who was the team general manager at the time. And so when I graduated, same thing, especially when I started working in suburban Indianapolis, I had the ability to start covering games because their PR person at the time was just happy to get any kind of coverage. And Mm -hmm. the Indianapolis Star staffed every game, but hey, this little suburban paper wants to come out and cover our games. I'm not going to say no. And you know, treated me basically as a member of the press corps, even though I probably only came to, during the regular season, four or five games a year, and then I tried to hit all the playoff games when possible. Mm -hmm. From there, I developed a relationship with you know, with the people who ran the show. Over time, I would occasionally continue to cover games when I could, but we'd get to moments where, you know, early 2000s, the stats crew was short a person, and now ethically, you you don't do this, but these people are my friends, they're, they're people I've worked alongside. Hey, we need somebody to keep face-offs. You know, we need somebody to track face-offs, because you do it. We need somebody to track men on ice, and so over time, I just continued to to come to games. The next thing I know, I'm helping do stats. Mm-hmm. And so when I transitioned out of full-time journalism, doing stats was a way to kind of continue to keep contact with the team. And and so a lot of times at the beginning of the year, because when I started teaching at New Pal, I was coaching basketball. So at the beginning of the year, I was usually available. And then from November to February, because I was a girls' basketball coach and our season ended in early February, I was completely AWOL. And then the last couple months of the season, I was around a lot. I came to every game I could. And so I was doing stats when I could, when I could come to games. And they knew that I had been doing a lot of announcing at New Pal. I, as I started teaching, I was asked to be the PA announcer for the baseball team. And then after I stepped down from coaching girls basketball, the coach basically begged me to be your stats person. And I, became the PA announcer there. And so I'd been doing a lot of announcing. I'd been doing some play-by-play as well at the high school level for different outlets. They knew that I was an announcer and basically got in a jam one day where they had a vacancy in their PA announcer position because somebody's full-time job got moved. Mm -hmm. And they needed somebody for weeknight games because that – their PA announcer could come back for weekends, but I um, and somebody else had a schedule conflict. It turned out I'm doing stats, and our PR person, Jason Berkman, looked at me and said, I need a PA announcer on Wednesday. Are you available? And I'm going, I'm really not, <laughs> but we'll make it work. And so we found a babysitter for our son, and I did PA, and then I got asked to do it again, and then again, and then the next year, we basically had a rotation of three of us, and I ended up doing about 40% of the games for the for the old Indiana Ice mm-hmm. of the USHL, and then that continued through the end of their franchise. Basically, the Indy Fuel were coming in in 2014. The Ice ended up having to suspend operations because they didn't have a place to play. And so Jason Berkman, who had basically hired me with the ice as a stat guy and later as a PA announcer. Jason became 
for just that first those first few months, kind of the director of hockey operations or business op. I'm not sure what his title was, mm-hmm. but basically he brought a lot of us who had worked with the ice on. And so I was brought on as the PA announcer because I had done that for a couple of years in a part-time role with the ice. And for the last four years, I have uh, done that with a fuel and I have done every game except two. I missed opening night because we were in Korea adopting our son. And a month later, we actually had to travel back to Korea to finalize it. So a month later, I missed a game and, but every, I've been at every uh, other game rinkside, uh, center ice uh announcing to you know announcing professional hockey which it's it's a different perspective because i get to know the referees because we're in constant communication with them because i'm kind of the liaison if you will between about three groups of people one is the referee because he is signaling penalties and now i have to announce them to the crowd one is the off-ice officials who are telling me who scored goals and who have the assists, and again, I have to announce those. Right. And then the third is a game ops crew, because if there's an emergency, for example, I'm the point person on getting, and thankfully that hasn't happened, but I'm the point person on getting the building evacuated, or the big thing we have to deal with is camera flashes. And so a flashing camera, especially with all the glass around, Mm-hmm. A camera flash in somebody's eyes can temporarily blind somebody. Mm-hmm. So we, every time we see a camera flash, I have to make the announcement. And I get pretty stern with it, but <laughs> I have to make the announcement, please turn off your flash. So I'm really kind of traffic control for about three different groups of people. And I have to communicate all of their messages to 6,000 people. And there's no room for imperfection. You can't mm-hmm. stumble over a syllable. You can't trip, you know, trip over a name. And sometimes it happens. You know, sometimes I, they give me the wrong assists and I have to go correct those. And be, that happens. That's not a huge deal, but uh, you really don't want to, uh, you don't want to make a mistake because it's going to be amplified to 6,000 people. And so there's really a sense of, you have to be a perfectionist in that job, but it's a lot of fun. You know, it was an opportunity for me to marry my passion of announcing right. with my passion of professional, yeah, my passion of hockey and obviously to work in pro hockey is, is pretty cool. And we really, I think a lot of teachers, you know, really have that sense of family as far as their staff and maybe their department. We really have that with a fuel. I, I really sense a strong family environment between those of us who work the games together because uh, it's a it's a fun environment. We we really enjoy each other's company and we really do kind of have a family atmosphere. And I I really feel like the city has really accepted the fuel as a part mm-hmm. of their sports their sports culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. And the one thing about Indianapolis that makes us somewhat unique is we're a major league city. And I think sometimes it's difficult to carve out a space as a minor league team in a major league city. And the one thing you have to have is that connection to the majors, even if it's not their favorite team. You know, mm-hmm. we've got a very popular AAA baseball team oh, yes. that's been affiliated with the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Milwaukee Brewers for the last several years, and probably say the Pirates or the Brewers are probably not even in the top ten as far as most popular baseball teams in central Indiana. But people go to games knowing 
I'm going to see Andrew McCutcheon play center field for the Indianapolis Indians. And a year from now, I'm going to see him playing center field for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Right. And, you know, I, I know that I might be seeing the next Randy Johnson uh, or the next Larry Walker or, you know, that same connection exists, you know, with, with the fuel. And I think that was one of the things we had a junior team before for 10 years and, I absolutely loved that team. I loved working for them. I loved watching the caliber of hockey that was played and seeing guys go on to the NHL, but there wasn't a connection. We couldn't market ourselves as we're affiliated with the Chicago Blackhawks or the St. Louis Blues, the Detroit Red Wings or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, you would see, use an example, I was pulling out an old program. I saw Jack Eichel and Austin Matthews playing on an opposing team. Well, those are two of the best young stars in the National Hockey League today, and I, mm-hmm. I got to watch them play together on the same team when they were 17 years old. And I thought, man, this is pretty cool. But most most of your casual observers, they don't know the difference. They just know, yeah, these guys are teenagers playing hockey. Right. And some of them might go on to the NHL. But when you know, with the Indy Fuel, we can and we do. We go out of our way. To tell you that we are the affiliate of the Chicago Blackhawks, and you know we plaster that Blackhawks logo over everything. Mm-hmm. And you know my my best friend's a big St. Louis Blues fan, and he comes to games and he's like, I hate listening to Chelsea Dagger after we score. And I'm like, Yeah, I, I fully understand, but oh yeah, understand that understand that that is the you know that that is the connection, even if you're not a Blackhawks fan. You know, I'm admittedly not one. I, I grew up, I got family from New England. I grew up a rabid Boston Bruins fan and still am. And you know, even if you're not a Chicago Blackhawks fan, at least they show you, you come to a game, there is a connection with the National Hockey League team. Right. Some of these players will go on and play in the NHL. You know, so far through the four years of our franchise, we had our first two NHL call-ups this year, one of which uh, was a guy named Justin Hall who played for the Maple Leafs and scored a goal in his first game, you can say, yes, these guys might go on uh, to play in the National Hockey League, and we're going to see, you're going to see that. And Mm -hmm. we're going to try to really play up that NHL connection. Because the one thing people, I often hear people say Indianapolis isn't a hockey town. That's not really true. I think Indianapolis is a city that has a strong fan base that has embraced hockey, Mm -hmm. but we're a major league town. So... They're Chicago Blackhawks fans. They're Columbus Blue Jackets fans. They're mm-hmm. Red Wings fans. They're Blues fans. Got a few Predators fans starting to mix in. You know, you have that sense of the connection is with the National Hockey League team. And so when we play up that connection, it says to that casual fan, hey, these guys are future NHLers. Therefore, mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to come come to an Andy Fuel game and watch guys who are in the NHL and going to the NHL. And I and we're two rungs below the National Hockey League, but <clears throat> you see regularly about 15 or 20 guys from our league go to the NHL every year. So, so, yeah, I think the city has embraced that, especially that connection to the National Hockey League that we have in the ECHL. And it's, a, uh, it's kind of been a neat thing. I, I know our first year, the team – really struggled to start. And we're an expansion mm-hmm. team and it looked like one. Um, <laughs> you didn't, you didn't and, look and like the Vegas great, Knights. 
Yeah, that's yeah. We weren't the Vegas Knights by any stretch of the imagination, and and that's not a criticism. I think it's just when you're an expansion team, it's difficult to recruit players, and it's difficult then to get the mix of guys you want. And over time, the the, the head coach at the time, who is a guy I'd, you know stay in touch with a little bit, named Scott Hillman, he started making some changes and bringing in players that he was familiar with, and suddenly. By the end of the year, we missed a playoff spot by I think uh, one game, mm-hmm. and the team it was like eight and twenty uh, midway through the season. We got into a stretch in February and March where they started winning games, and there was a game we were playing a team called the South Carolina Stingrays that had won twenty three straight games, league record, and beat them. And the you could tell that the crowd. The crowd's kind of divided. You kind of have your diehards who really know what's going on. And then you've got your people that are just there out to have a good time. But I'm not sure if I've ever seen a crowd as invested in a game as they were that night. And Mm -hmm. you could just feel the energy. And that just that night felt like a turning point that, yes, this town is really going to embrace us as a franchise and as a team and as their own team. And it's not just a novelty anymore. It is, this is a big deal. So I think, you know, we've been able to carve out our own niche, which is not easy in a city like Indianapolis because it's, it's a city of metro area of about 2 million people. It's a fairly small market, but you've got the Colts, you have the Pacers, you have IMS, which is basically a third major league team with the Indy 500 and the Brickyard and the things they host there. Then you've got Butler and a lot of attention that goes to IU and Purdue, football and basketball, especially basketball. So, and then during the summer, you have the Indianapolis Indians and you have a very popular uh, second division soccer team. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of difficult to carve out your niche, but I, I think that we've been able to successfully do that. And it takes, again, that NHL connection put on a good show for the fans last year we won the echl's game operations of the year award and then and then connect with your fans as well our uh, our social media people are unbelievable in doing that and they were uh i think you know social media of the year as well so and i was a small participant i guess in those but very proud to work with a good team but when you do that i think you make connections with people and when you make connections it becomes a, a really awesome experience, and and you're able to really kind of create that niche. I think the one thing the Fuel are doing that really hadn't been done at this level before is they're really taking ownership of developing the grassroots. They put a lot into youth hockey. They own they own a couple of rinks or operate a couple of rinks. There's basically four recreational rinks in Central Indiana, and they own or operate. There's five. They own, operate, or run the junior hockey in three of the five. Mm-hmm. And they work with the other two. Even though they're technically direct competitors, they still, you know, they still support the other two because they understand youth hockey is important. This is the grassroots. This is where our next generation of fans is gonna come from. You know, I was a seven year old in the stands thirty years ago, thirty five years ago. And you know, now I'm sitting front row center ice every game because I have a passion for hockey. Mm-hmm. And so if you develop that passion, those kids are going to play. They're going to become ticket buyers. Their kids may play. And it's really to to build something sustainable. You, you really want to grow things at the grassroots. And I think that is 
that's where you know our ownership has really uh, had a big commitment is to try to do so. So it's not just a well, here's a team that's going to be around for ten years and then it'll fade into obscurity like every other hockey team we've right. had, or you know it'll end up getting caught up in league politics or arena politics or things like that that has happened in Indy. This team is going to be around, and we're around for the long term, and we want to be here for 20, 30, 40 years. We want to be as much as an institution as the Fort Wayne Comets are in Fort Wayne or the uh, Hershey Bears are in Pennsylvania, some of these longstanding minor league hockey teams. We want to be an institution in our community like those teams are in theirs. And you know, and it comes through developing a multi-generational fan base. Very cool. I, you know, you talk about making that connection, you know, I can probably trace my love of baseball to when I was a kid, we lived in Huntsville, um, mm-hmm. Alabama. And there used to be a franchise there. It was actually really sad for me when they when they left. I wasn't living there anymore, mm-hmm. but the Huntsville Stars. And they were an Oakland A's affiliate at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing Miguel Tejada and... Mm-hmm. Mark McGuire would come down for a rehab assignment, and yes, and I'm still a, I'm a, I'm a pretty rabid Cardinals fan, but I am, but honestly, I've never been to Oakland in my life. I'll probably never go there, <laughs> but I am a huge A's fan to this day, and I, I love, I love that, that culture, and that's where kind of where I, sort of found my passion, but sort of switching, mm-hmm. sort of seeing the. Uh, sort of combining the two things that you do, how do you manage doing your announcing, which I'm sure it takes more than what people think. Some people, I think, maybe you just sit down at a desk and then you just start talking. And you, there's, more, <laughs> yeah. there's more, there's way more to it than that. But how do you manage a full-time teaching position and family life and during the hockey season being part of the announcing crew? How do you do that? It takes a lot of time management skill, and it it can be difficult at times because, as you mentioned, it's not just you sit down and start talking. I really try to keep up on what's going on in the league. I really try to prepare for uh, games. I know who the opponents are. A lot of times, I uh, for every game, I've got to be there two hours early at a minimum mm-hmm. to talk with the other coaches, correct pronunciations, find out what we're doing on a game ops basis, and I've got to be in my seat at the start of warm-ups, which is 40 minutes before the game. So so a game is not just the three hours or two and a half hours that we have on the ice. I'm usually there at 5 and leave at 11 or 12. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's another full-time day on top of my teaching day in the morning if it's, say, a Friday night game. Right. I think what you really have to do is you have to be very intentional about your scheduling. You know, so for example, you know, I may come home from school on Monday and I'll take a break. I'll just get, get away and kind of clear my head. But Monday evening, maybe after dinner, kids are watching TV or after they've gone to bed, I'll spend about an hour or so in prep, you know, learning about teams we're covering. And in addition to this, I'm usually just a, really now more of anything to just be a service to our school and our community and really in a lot of ways we've kind of created a monster with it is I broadcast our high school football games on Friday and when I'm available I do our basketball games as well so we do the full football schedule and I end up doing a little bit more than half of the basketball schedule and then once things pick up in the spring and you know the hockey season's over sometimes we'll do a few baseball games and 
covered like our whole softball state championship run this spring. But uh, so I'm doing play by play on that end. But a lot of times what I'll do Sunday afternoon, we, you know, faith is very important in our family. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll go to church. We come home. And Sunday afternoon, we really kind of see is kind of time for rest. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I take that very quiet time and that's game prep time for me. I'll be seeing what games I have to do this week, whether it's hockey or football or basketball, start researching a little bit about the opponents, start kind of learning names, learning pronunciations. And really, I try to do as much of my work on Sundays as possible. And then maybe Monday after the kids have gone to bed after dinner, I'll try to do a little bit and then kind of each night during the week, maybe 20, 30 minutes of just refreshing, going through the internet, reading up on teams. And then, yeah, on game day, it's two hours early. You're probably, you know, you're the first one there and usually the last one to leave at a high school event. But at a pro hockey event, you know, you're there two hours early. You're leaving probably half hour to an hour after the game. So it's a six, seven, eight hour day. Mm -hmm. And you really... I think the one thing is when you've got a hot mic, whether it's PA or play-by-play, you've got to be on. Mm -hmm. And if you're not prepared, especially if you're doing play-by-play, if you're not prepared, everybody knows it very Mm -hmm. quickly. So, you know, I really try to pride myself on being prepared and kind of knowing what to expect. So, you know, by the time that we go live, my job's easy Mm because then I can just describe what I see and, you know, maybe pull a little nugget here or there, but... I'm not fishing through my notes to figure out who the receiver is who just caught a ball or uh, fishing through my notes to figure out how to pronounce the name of the Russian guy who just scored. Right. Um, so, and then, yeah, I kind of had one this year where uh, we were playing a team and the pronunciation guy, the opposing team gave me, gave me one pronunciation. And then I kind of found out from the opposing team's fans who kind of let me know pretty quickly that that was not correct. And so, <laughs> and so, uh, I and this we hosted our league's all star game, which was going to be nationally televised on NHL Network. So and this guy ends up getting getting picked for the team. So I'm going, oh no, you know. <laughs> I happen to, and this is the type of research you'll do. So I'm googling this guy, and I happen to stumble upon this guy had played in the American Hockey League in Tucson, Arizona. One of the sports anchors from Tucson is, I guess, fluent in Russian. Oh my! And so they're doing this feature where they're both skating around the ice talking to each other kind of switching back and forth between russian and english and so i kind of learned how to pronounce his name because he pronounced it you know the player himself did on this feature and so you know that's something i'll do a lot is i'll go through the opposing team's roster and if i don't know a name i'll google that player and i will try to figure out how to pronounce that name beforehand that way if i don't catch up to him during the game and that's certainly the case for opposing players. For our players, I can just go to the dressing room and right, ask. Right, right, right. But, uh, you know, for opposing players, if I don't know a name, I'll try to at least figure it out and do some research on them beforehand. So, you know, there's an old saying in broadcasting that for every hour you're on the air, you do two hours of prep. Yeah. And, you know, I know they say the same thing in college. You know, for every hour you're in class, you do two hours of studying. But, uh, you know, even for PA, I would say I probably do about – you know, an hour of prep for every game, just learning names and making sure that I've got everything down. Thank you for for coming on and and talking with me. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me on the podcast. 
And thank you for listening to part two of my interview with Andrew Smith. I hope you really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed getting to learn about what it's like running a high school journalism program and all the ins and outs that go with that, as well as what it takes to produce a minor league hockey game. I think that is really exciting. It's something that I really wanted to learn about. And I think it's cool that Andrew has managed to do all this and continue living both passions of his life. If you would like to listen to more episodes of the podcast, go check it out at educatorscape.com, or you can subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, and on Spotify. You can find us by searching our page on Facebook and liking the page. You can follow me on Twitter at educatorscape. And you can find me on Instagram at Educatorscape, where we post every day special quotes from each episode. So look out for those if you're on those social media platforms. I hope everybody enjoyed the episodes this week. On Monday, math teacher Karen Ridge is going to be talking with me about her experience as a math teacher and managing to be in the Air Force at the same time as well. So that you will join me for that podcast on Monday. Thank you for listening. I will see you all on Monday. Have a great weekend.